Good morning, everybody. You know, any night uh, in Philadelphia in August that you can have your windows open is a great gift. <laughs> but you do think about what's happening in uh, Hawaii. We have friends in Montreal, north of Montreal. We have many friends out in British Columbia, Spokane, Washington, Boise, Idaho, places uh, that I know are burning. And uh, they go to bed smelling smoke every night. So let's continue to pray. Now notice in your uh, program, the Apostles' Creed is printed. This is our third message on this great creed. Think of it like a baton in a relay race. This creed has been passed from generation to generation in many languages, hundreds of languages, to answer a very basic question needed for every generation, but as never more needed than it is in the 21st century. The question is, what do Christians believe? What do Christians believe? Now, this creed is attributed to the apostles, consequently the name, the Apostles' Creed, because every word and phrase reflects their teachings as recorded in the New Testament. But the creed does not quote them. They did not write this. No one knows who wrote this. At the heart of the creed, however, is a message that is central to our faith. It's the message of God's redeeming love from beginning to end. So I suggest keep a copy in your Bible. Take one of these bulletins this week, for example, and slide it in your Bible. For what Paul told the church in Corinth about our role as followers of Christ needs not only prayer, but we need sometimes a statement of faith to explain what we believe. Paul told the church in Corinth, we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead. Come back to God. Come home. Come home, and this creed can help you be effective in that ministry. Now, let's do it again as we did week one, week two, week three. Let's stand, and the tradition in many churches is when the pastor says the question, Christian, what do you believe? We say in unison the words printed on the screen. So Christians at Springton Lake, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Have a seat. I'm going to review this for those who were not here week one or two, but we all 
benefit from review. I know that I do all week. I've been meditating and thinking about the implications of this creed. First of all, when we confess, I believe in God. This is personal. This is God wanting to know what is on your heart and in your mind. But when we say it together, it is also personal in the larger sense that we're going to look at today. We are a part of a community of faith. In every nation on the earth, gathered in this building at this time. And so when we say, I believe in God, we are anchoring ourselves to the living God. And in doing so, we can rest secure. The object and the focus of our faith is God. But the question it raises, that I raise right here from this pulpit on Friday at a memorial, is does it make any difference? Did it make any difference to Dolores Learn, whose life was memorialized as a follower of Jesus Christ? And I answer yes for all of you, for me, and yes for her. Christians, you see, according to the creed, don't just believe in something. We believe in someone. I will never forget when I first met Dolores many years ago. She was a part of the community Bible study that met at Church of the Savior in Wayne. She was a relatively new attendee, and she was very interested to participate in the children's ministry. Well, on this particular Tuesday, I was going to Church of the Savior to take Becky out for lunch. He was the teaching director, so I was waiting in the lobby for her. And then I went into the main room, and she was motioning to me, come. And someone was standing there. She wanted me to meet her friend. Kathy Markle was the friend who spoke on Friday. Kathy, you know this story. And so I walked down the aisle, and Becky said, I want you to meet Dolores Learn. She is the newest member of our children's ministry team. I stuck out my hand, and before she could shake it, she said, well, you know I'm dying, don't you? <laughs> I looked at Becky, who just kind of went like this, nodded a little bit, smiled. And I said, well, Dolores, I did not know that about you. Well, I am, but I'm not afraid. Now, on Friday, a granddaughter told that story about grandma. Her son told that story about his mom and his brother and sister. They were nodding, and the whole room broke into a laughter because they all, we all heard Dolores say to us at some point, you know, I'm dying. She had cancer years before. It was an arduous treatment of her whole body, the therapy, but this kind of talk started when Dolores was spiritually reborn by the gift of saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now, according to the Bible, saving faith is a gift from God. It is something supernatural. And according to Hebrews 11.1, 1, it means having the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. When Dolores said, I'm dying, what she was really saying was, I'm not afraid of it. When she came to Christ, her children all testified, her grandchildren testified, Kathy testified, I testified that I don't believe I've ever met someone with such an assurance and confidence of faith as Dolores learned. So it was a celebration. When she trusted in Jesus Christ to be her Lord and Savior, she experienced something from God's word, it's called assurance of eternal life, and it was a rock 
solid guarantee that she believed that reaches from here to eternity. So that's the way she did evangelism. Hi, you know I'm dying. And I'll guarantee you, most of us thought, whoa, something's missing. But guess what? She was the most grounded person in the room. Because with certainty, when she said, I believe, it changed everything. She was like the Apostle Paul, who was so confident about heaven that he wrote this to the Church of Philippi. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. And so I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Jesus, which would be a lot better for me. But for your sake, it is better that I continue to live. And so for many years, it was better for the children and the grandchildren and her friends and her ministry. And she always sat right about there. But then there was the day when God said, it's time to come home. Second, we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I say to you that the great sin of humanity continues to be the refusal to acknowledge what our five senses cry out every single day. And that is that God is the creator. And we should honor him as such. And then the creed transitions. In the middle section, which is the longest, Jesus is presented as the son of God sent by the father to save his people from their sins. And so thirdly, we confess in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Very explicit. By saying this, we acknowledge the prophetic importance of his name. His name is a fulfillment of the plans and the purposes of God. Jesus, his given name, means the Lord saves. Now that's a bold name for a parent to give a child. The Lord saves. And Jesus, his given name, was communicated by an angel to his father, Joseph. An angel revealed this to Joseph in a dream, and he said, you'll name him Jesus, which means he will save his people from their sins. But look at the creed. The Greek word Christ is not his last name, it's his title. It translates the Hebrew word Messiah. Both Christ and Messiah mean the anointed one. Now, there's some confusion about that. Anointed with what? The answer, the Holy Spirit. Anointed by whom? The Father. Anointed for what? To be the rightful covenant king fulfilling the missions of the fallen kingship of Adam and David. The kingdom of God is both a present reality and a future hope. The kingdom of God has come. And it is also coming. From that perspective, we see that the Father's perfect will is being done on earth as it is in heaven by the anointing of Jesus. And one day, the Bible teaches, all the children of God will be joint heirs with Jesus to rule over the entire universe. That's another subject entirely. We also believe, look at the creed, that Jesus the Christ is Lord. Three names there, Lord. When we revere him as Lord, we acknowledge his victory over sin, death, and the devil. And for this victory, the Apostle Paul told the Philippians, therefore, 
because he did all of this supremely well and completely, never to be done again. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue, here it is, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Then the creed makes a shift to the mission of Jesus the Christ. Fourth, when we say who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. You see, why it's important to review this is because when we say this creed, if you're from a tradition where you did it every Sunday or on Communion Sunday, you probably memorized it and it was just a da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-
But then, after the resurrection and after his return, he understood the gravity of this when he wrote about Jesus. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. And then he quotes from Isaiah 53, by his wounds we have been This reveals how much God so loved the world. Seventh, we confess that he died and buried. Again, the New Testament writers gives us the whole story. Torture, torment, blood, crushing death. The Son of God was laid on a cold rock in a dark tomb. And then we say, and this takes us even deeper, he descended into hell. Now, there's a lot of controversy about this. But I believe this expresses the spiritual reality of what Jesus faced when he hung alone between heaven and earth on a piece of wood. The Old Testament said anyone who dies on a piece of wood is cursed of God. Rejected and condemned by his father to be forsaken, to be cut off from God. And for that brief time, when he bore the sins, past, present, and future of the entire world, he felt the torment of hell. But he did not go there. Eighth, but death and the grave could not hold the almighty God who was innocent. And so by the power of God, he was set free. Therefore, we confess, without this there is no hope, we confess that the third day he rose from the grave, from the dead. You see, only after his conversion did Saul of Tarsus, who would become the Apostle Paul, the great Jewish Pharisee, make this the centerpiece of his preaching. He told the Corinthians that I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried, according to the scriptures. And that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. It's the centerpiece of everything. If this did not happen, we are of all people, Paul wrote, people to be pitied. Because it didn't happen. And we're pretending it's like poetry that we read. It's like fiction that we, we enjoy or fantasy that we watch. But this is history. Paul had no comprehension of this reality and the true meaning of Isaiah 53, which raises the question, so where is Jesus now? Ninth, we confess, he ascended into heaven. And is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. This is an end time truth. It was true 2,000 years ago when he ascended. And he is there now at the right hand of the Father. How do I know? Because you're still here and I'm here. As followers of Christ, we haven't been taken into glory. Jesus has not come yet. He arrived in humility when we believe this. He ascended into heaven. Born as a human child in a manger, but he departed from the planet as a risen redeemer, glorious and wonderful. In Acts chapter 1, you might want to turn to it, Luke described the event for his friend Theophilus. He said, until the day when Jesus was taken up, 
he ordered them, his followers, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise from the Father, which he said, you heard from me over three years, you heard about it. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. And so when they came together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know. The times and the season that the Father has set by his own authority. Basically, he says, I don't even know when I'm coming back. But here's the key. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he said these things, there they were all standing there together. He was lifted up. Now, I've been to some of those plays with great stages, and you see people lifted up with ropes and all kinds of marbles of wire. I love to watch Star Trek. You can just beam me up. It's a little bit more of the beam me up is what happened, except that they all could see it so they could testify over the course of their lives. I was there on the day when Jesus Christ left the earth. Gravity could not hold him. And so now the Bible and the creed, we just said, I believe. We are saying that he's at the right hand, which refers to the place of honor. From there, he will come. It speaks about the second coming of Christ. But when he leaves his royal throne to return to planet Earth, things will be very different indeed. Listen to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. The writer wrote, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time, but not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly Waiting for him. I think I said it last week. What's your eager meter? The world's news can make us despairing. But there is still hope. There is the hope of the promise that Jesus is coming back. Do you believe it? Paul in Romans chapter 8 tells us Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, the one who was raised. He's at the right hand of God. He's working for us. He is interceding for us according to our needs. He is busy in heaven. Interceding for us as our great high priest. And this idea sets up the last part of the creed. Let me read it. I believe in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Catholic Church. The communion of saints. The forgiveness of sins. The resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Now we're going to examine the first three lines and next week the last three. First, we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of the Trinity means that there is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But this idea was not well received in the early church. It was considered to be heretical, which means a significant departure from traditional beliefs. To be Jewish was to be monotheistic. There is one God. But with the coming of Jesus Christ, 
things changed. We understood that there are three persons in the Trinity. In Acts chapter 19, Luke wrote about an incident that reveals this misunderstanding. When Paul came to Ephesus, he found some disciples. And he said to them, this is Luke the historian, he's so good. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. We have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. They had no idea. Well, how could they know? It's all happening. This is the beginning. This is the stirring. This is why we need a creed. This is why we need to be taught. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to turn, to go in a new direction, to come to the one who would be coming after him, who was Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a great story. But notice what the Apostles' Creed does not say. Look at it. It says, I believe in the Holy Spirit. It does not describe in detail the character or the nature of the third person of the Trinity. Dr. Stan Gale, in his great book, I'd recommend it to you, called The Christian's Creed, writes that the purpose of the Apostles' Creed was to summarize our faith. And that the Nicene Creed, which was written in 325 A.D., it was composed to defend the faith. Because after century one, two, and three, there was a complete lie being told, many lies being told, about the unity of the person of Christ and about the deity of the Holy Spirit. And we were this close to basically breaking apart because of conspiracies and lies and half-truths. And so Dr. Gale describes this last section as a job description of the Holy Spirit. Look at the creed while I'll read what he wrote. He wrote, I believe in the Holy Spirit who forms, unifies, and empowers the church. I believe in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit among God's saints. I believe in the Holy Spirit who works faith and confirms and confers forgiveness. I believe in the Holy Spirit who raises the dead. And I believe in the Holy Spirit who bestows eternal life. That's what that means in tight language. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, when we say the creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit, we acknowledge that Christ is building his church through the work of the Holy Spirit. And this was powerfully demonstrated in the ministry of Jesus. Listen to the many ways that the Holy Spirit was uniquely connected to Jesus. For example, in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, Luke tells us the Christmas story that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Second, in Luke 3, we see a description of the baptism of Jesus by the Holy Spirit right before he began his ministry. John the Baptist was baptizing in the Jordan River. I, I can just imagine a long line with a lot of spectators on the bank. And he looked up and he could hardly believe it when he saw his cousin coming toward him. Luke wrote that right after Jesus submitted to baptism, John the Baptist said, no, you should baptize me. Jesus said, all things must be fulfilled. 
when the Lord Jesus Christ submitted to water baptism. Then Jesus prayed, Luke wrote, and I quote, Then the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Here he comes. And a voice was heard from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, do you think Jesus needed to hear that? He knows that. He's in a symbiotic relationship with his father. The booming voice of God was for those who were there. Luke retold the story so that we could imagine it in our minds too. And then right away, the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. He's baptized, a voice from the Father, and into the wilderness he goes, led by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, Luke wrote, then returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. He was not alone. He's not dragging around in the desert complaining about no food and no water. The presence of God by the Holy Spirit is with him. And at the end of 40 days, as his angels came and met his needs. And then stay with me, 40 days later, Luke writes to tell us, and then Jesus returned in power by the Spirit to Galilee. And he came to Nazareth, and he went to his home synagogue on the Sabbath day, and they handed him the scroll that was the reading for the day. It was from Isaiah chapter 61. And Jesus stood up and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because I am anointed to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he said, this is fulfilled in your hearing. And he sat down. There should have been a, whoa, we were there. Instead, there was murmuring and gossip and jealousy and fear. But Jesus was not alone. The Holy Spirit was upon Jesus for the next three years. Everything that he did was in obedience to the will of the Father, made possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the same is true for us. That's why we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And here's what's true for you and me. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and 11. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. You see, you might say the words, I believe in the Holy Spirit and not have any faith at all. You can just sort of whatever. But when you believe, listen to the second part. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who now dwells in you. You were dead. But now you are alive. That's why it's so important for you to know what's true. Because when you say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, it's because the witness of the Spirit is helping you by saving faith to trust Him. 
And so I say to you that we have work to do. Stan Gale gets it right. This last section is about what are we supposed to do, but we can't do it in our own strength. And Jesus made this very clear in John 14, 15, 16. We don't have time to look at it, unpack it all. But these are passages about the Holy Spirit called the advocate or the helper. He said, I'm about to leave. Where are you going? Where I'm going, you cannot come. But when I leave, I will send a comforter, a helper, the Holy Spirit, who will be with you 24-7. When the helper comes, Jesus said, that I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Everything about the work of the Holy Spirit is pointing to Jesus. Never was a God more humble than the Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, the Holy Spirit calls us by name, gives us a new birth, a new life, a new status, a new hope. That's why Dolores learned was contagious. I don't know how many people, whoa, you know, what's wrong with this lady? I got to get off this train. I got to get out of this seat, move my seat. No. She went right after people because she was fearless, contagious because the Holy Spirit was speaking to and through her. She was like the Apostle Paul who wrote to the Galatians, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. And this happens individually and also to us as a group, to the church. For all of God's children are a part of the church. So second, we say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Now, those three words are easy to say, but they are all very important. Number one, to be holy is simply to be set apart for God's purpose. Peter wrote this. He was the most unholy, holy man. As obedient children, he says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, so you also should be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Set apart for a purpose. But I want you to know, being holy does not make you loved by God. Or this room would be empty. We are not perfect. Our holiness in this life is always diminished by our nature and our selfishness, and our pride. By his love, he makes us into who we should be. He loved us because he loved the world. He's called you by name, and he knows you, and he loves you. I was asking Becky, my wife, if she had memorized the Apostles' Creed when she was a child. And she said, I was kind of stunned. No, are you kidding she said, in our denomination, in our group, where I was raised, we did not say the Apostles' Creed because of the word Catholic. Well, she's come a long way since then. You need to know what she did not know. The word Catholic is a small c. Look at it. It is not a reference to a denomination. It comes from a Greek adjective that means universal or worldwide or global. Holy Catholic Church. 
practically it means that we are a part of something much larger than one local church or denomination. I love the PCA, but it's small. Before God in the world of faith, believe me. I once asked a friend of mine, I won't mention the denomination, what he would be if he wasn't a member of that denomination. He said, I'd be ashamed of myself. <laughs> and then I said to him, I said, well, then I guess you won't be in the choir described by John the Apostle in Revelation chapter 5. Where he wrote, and they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Hmm. And when he's looking at me now like, oh, man, alive, I can't believe I said that. <laughs> and you have made them a kingdom and priests set apart to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. A holy, Catholic, called-out people of God. Finally, we believe in the communion of saints. Now, here's another word, saints. It's another way of saying Christian. It is not that other way of thinking about Christianity. It is not a reference to super-holy, perfect followers of Jesus who get a statue, who get a building named after them. No. Look at most of the introductions in the New Testament. Paul, Simon Peter referred to this as a letter to the saints, to the brothers and sisters in Christ at Springton Lake. I say it another way, the ground is level at the cross. We love to stratify everything in this life. Beauty, strength, intelligence, wealth. We compare everything. God doesn't do that. This is not a reference to a super holy people. Communion is another word for fellowship, which is a translation of the Greek word koinonia. You know that word. We almost called the hall koinonia, but then we thought, wait a minute, every time that somebody comes to the church, what does that mean? It's Greek, and it's gonna get, it'll get clumsy. So we just say fellowship. But I'm not sure that it does justice to what we really believe. The word koinonia means in common. Now, we have many things in common. Right now, we're all in this room. We have that in common. We are all in Delaware County. We're all in Marple Township right now. We're all in Pennsylvania. We're all in the United States of America. We're all on planet Earth right now. We have that in common. But the most important commonality among all of you in this room with me and with each other is that we have a love for Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That's what fellowship means in common. That's what we have in common. Not that we like coffee black or with cream and sugar. I love coffee cafe, but it's not about the food or the drink. It's what brings us down there together. And we have this in common then. We are in this room to worship Jesus. Our unity was at the heart of what Jesus prayed for in John 17. You know, when Jesus 
prayed in John 17. He was just days before his crucifixion, just uh, over a month before the ascension that we just talked about a moment ago. So what did he pray for? What was the number one thing on his list that he prayed for about six times? In John chapter 17, he prayed this. I'm not asking for the world, but for those, for those whom you have given me. For they are yours, Father. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me through the first century, through the second century, through the 15th century, all the way to the 20th and the 21st century. The baton has been passed by the Holy Spirit. That they may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. And here it is, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That is why disunity is so terrible. There is so much disunity in the world. If you're going to be looking at Christianity through binoculars and you see people fighting, they are not coming one step towards you. Why would they? You see, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, there's no argument between them. They're completely united in soul and purpose, always have been, always will be. And koinonia was very much on Paul's heart when he wrote to the Ephesians. This is what he said in chapter 4. I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling, which you have been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. When we have that in common, we are a blessed people. And so here it is. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. And I say to you in closing, when we affirm these beliefs, we declare with joy and conviction that we belong to Jesus Christ. We declare that we are his children, brothers and sisters in the family of God. And we long for him to return so that we will be able to see him face to face all at once, together. And to share in that glorious moment for all eternity. Our closing song is so appropriate. It's come to us, O Lord. I love the stanza that says, we need you now. Break our chains by your glory and power. Make us captive to the holy desire. Come to us, O Lord. Let's stand and sing it together.